I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. People around the business just thought we were stupid. Like, you guys don't even have a big mac and cheese business yet. What are you doing expanding the brand to another category? You're dumb. You shouldn't do that. Blah, blah, blah. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we sit down with John Foraker, the food industry legend who followed his instinct as any CEO to not only expand the brand, but take the company public and navigate a sale to General Mills. But he wasn't done yet. My original deal with Mills was that I was going to be there a year. And it wasn't like, John, in a year, we'll ask you if you want to stay. It was like, no, John, you're gone in a year. (laughs) Heads up for any entrepreneur. That's generally the way it's structured. Find out why John surprised almost everyone by joining the team at Once Upon a Farm, the tiny organic brand for kids, when his industry leader status could have taken him anywhere. Unfinished Biz starts now. Rum, John Foraker is really a natural products industry icon, isn't he? I, honestly, I consider him to be a unicorn. I mean, he's one of the few people who's actually taken a food business public and then on top of that sold it to a strategic. I, I honestly can't think of anyone else who's done that. Despite that rock star status, I never knew the full story. I mean, I often give the example of Annie's when a lot of entrepreneurs perceive it to be this overnight success, mm-hmm. but it took a long time to, to build and I'm really glad they never asked me to tell them the story in detail because I, I honestly didn't know it. But thank goodness John finally told us the full thing. So we caught up with John when he stopped by our VMG offices in San Francisco. Well, my entrepreneurial journey began when I was um, a, I was a banker. I graduated from UC Davis and I, I really didn't get any good career advice. But somebody told me that maybe I should go work for a bank and then I could learn about business. So Rather than being a farmer, I went and did that. And then I went back to business school at Berkeley. And while I was at business school, I fell in love with the idea of starting this company with some folks up in Napa. And it was a business that was doing like specialty olive oils and flavored vinegars and things like that. And it was selling into um, Neiman Marcus and Dayton Hudson and lots of these high-end specialty retailers when specialty food was very different than natural food. Um, And so I just dove all the way in. It's amazing that I graduated from Berkeley because I was working pretty much full time that second year. Um, so that's my first like startup experience. Was there a gap in time before you, you became part of Annie's? Yeah. So that business grew and then we started, it started, we got it up to about a 10 or 11 million and we started looking for growth opportunities outside of that business. And we kind of came to the conclusion that we're about as big as we could be with that brand in that space. So we started looking around for other things we could acquire or buy. And long story short, I came across Annie's. It was an existing business that was founded in 1989 in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Um, and what year was this when you discovered so it? So it was in about 1998. Okay. And how did you find it, actually? Um, it was a public company, and mm-hmm. I was following its uh, SEC filings. I think that's even before Edgar. It was Wow. Which is the search algorithm. Yeah. Right? So... I was following it, and it was this uh, cool brand that existed in San Francisco Bay Area and in basically in Metro Boston. And um, I just fell in love with the brand and what it stood for, and and uh, really followed it and watched it. And then 
a friend introduced me to um, the guy who was running it, who's a great entrepreneur, Paul Nardoni. He's still in the space. Yeah, yeah he runs yeah. Uh, Pop Corners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been very successful. And he was the, the really the talent they brought in that really got the sales side of that business going. And he was running the business, and they had kind of run out of capital, and they were looking for an investor. And there were a lot. It was complicated. It was a public company, but it didn't trade. Um, people loved the brand, but it was too small. So it was like this thing everyone wanted to invest in, but it was kind of hairy and complicated. How big of the business was it at the time, and what it did they about, sell? Was it, they were selling just mac and cheese. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was about 5 or $6 million in revenue after 10 years of being in existence. So this is 1989. Mm-hmm. It's already, so it started in the this late is, 70s. This is 1998. No, Actually, 19, it started in ni- 1989. Got it. This is 1998, about yep. 10 years. Mm-hmm. So... Well, wow, it's not not quite the the overnight success that that people perceive it to be, or the, it didn't start out at the, as the platform brand that people refer it to. No, it it really grew um, very intentionally over a long period of time to even get to that point. Nowadays, ten ten years to get to five or six million, it's kind of like, what have you been doing? But back then, it was ahead of its time. There was, you know, Whole Foods had maybe 30 stores and was just starting to acquire Bread and Circus and all these other places. Um, And so there really wasn't a place for it other than in a few natural food stores and some retailers like Stop and Shop were ahead of their time and were integrating natural foods way before other people were. So um, as as the business grew over many years, we had lots of trials and tribulations. This business almost went out of business a couple times. You but know, before we get there, how, how did so how did you end up getting involved? So you had this so, public company, yeah. and so they wanted to raise capital. So um, I knew they were they had an offer from a venture firm. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, who was going to combine it with some kind of weird popcorn business and probably ruin the brand? So the true story: I got on an, um, an airplane at an SFO. It was an overnight flight. It's my first overnight flight. Um, showed up in Boston. Went straight to the lawyer's office and met um, Annie and her um, husband, Rob, their attorney and everything. And I just pitched them on like why they should let me invest in this thing and help keep it independent and build this brand rather than sell it to somebody else. And um, and then it kind of went well. And they kind of said, yeah, yeah, probably. And so then I got on the airplane and went, oh, my God, I need to find $3 million. How am I going to do that? <laughs> How did you even arrange for that meeting to happen? Um, it was a uh, it was arranged uh, through Paul, who I had mentioned before, um, and uh, it was just a a, coinc- a series of coincidences and people that I knew and that knew me, and it just happened. So, where did you get the three million dollars? So we we raised it the old fashioned way, you know, sitting down with one investor at a time, twenty five to fifty thousand dollars a shot generally, and it was really difficult to do, but we got it done, closed the deal, and then. Um, I was running the other company still, and so Annie stayed separate. That we left him out in Wakefield, but we made a deal between the two companies where my sales organization um, and my marketing team, which was pretty good for a ten or twelve million dollar company, would do a bunch of the work for Annie's. So we we started doing all the sales representation, and the business really started to grow. And this was still the late nineties, or this is. This is the, the, no, this is the early 00s now. Okay. Got it. Early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So what, so at what point did the business move, move to San Francisco or move to the Bay Area? I moved it in 2004. Okay. Um, and we kind of combined the two businesses that, um, so my sales organization, marketing people, 
We brought some people from the East Coast out here. We left a small office back there. It was focused on field marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, in 2002, we raised some um, equity capital from a private equity firm in New York. And they capitalized the business, and it was just off to the races. And it was the, the long decade after that, a lot of growth. And at what point in time were you sort of the person sitting over both businesses? Because at, at one point, it sounded like um, you left them a little bit alone. Um, I was, yeah, I left them alone. They were, they were doing stuff, but like I was the chairman of a seven person company and Uh, we were, we were working on it a lot. Right. Got it. Um, and my sales team was selling it. So, um, but there were still people back there doing their roles, operational stuff. And Paul was still really active in the sales side of the business. So at what point did it start turning? Cause you mentioned that it was a, you know, a business that was struggling to grow, undercapitalized, mm-hmm. and then you were still part of two organizations. Mm-hmm. Well, we combined the organizations in 2004. And, yep. then, and then I call like the mid-00s like a real formative period for us, but also a really tough period for us. We, we managed to grow pretty much every year. We struggled with margins. We struggled until we – the business really never started making money, good money, until we got to about $50 million in revenue, $50, $60 million. Um, and and we had some years where it was really painful and where we struggled with cash and all that stuff. The, it's, so it took a long time. So in the mid-2000s, when, when the businesses came together, mm-hmm. moved to the Bay Area, mm-hmm. was it still 100% mac and cheese at that point? It was, yeah. We launched um, Cheddar Bunnies in, or it was about 2005, I think, right about that time. And Cheddar Bunnies was was literally just a really interesting idea. It was one day I was thinking about this brand and why I loved it so much. And um, I remember the things I was saying were none of them had anything to do with mac and cheese. It was about social activism and emotional connection the brand had with moms and cute bunnies and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, maybe it can expand to other categories. And I didn't know enough to know how hard that was or like how stupid it probably was. Um, so I picked up the phone and I called Paul and I'm like, Hey Paul, you know, my kids eat a whole bunch of these little goldfish and look, they're full of hydrogenated oils. And they're like, why don't we do a bunny? Wouldn't that be such a cool idea? He loved the idea. And he goes, let me get, Paul's a great entrepreneur. He's like, let me get on that. So he works on it for a bit, um, with their operations team and they find a bakery. It turned out to be a bakery that we ended up buying years later to bring into the business, but they made the first cheddar bunny. Awesome. We brought it to Expo East, I think, and exposed it. And we sold 500000 our first year. We thought it was like the biggest thing ever. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. And a lot of people who were some investors in the business and a lot of people around the business just thought we were stupid. Like, you guys don't even have a big mac and cheese business yet. What are you doing expanding the brand to another category? You're dumb. You shouldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, I don't know. Entrepreneurs sometimes just have an instinct. I just had an instinct. Like I, I felt like this was worth it and it was going to be a shot. And it turned out to be a real seminal moment for the business because our, our meals business, which is mostly mac and cheese, is still it's a huge business now. And it grew every single year after that. And then, then Cheddar Wings became the foundation for snacks. And that business grew. And both of them are about half and half in the business all these years later. You know, Mills owns a business. Now it's... Yeah around a $500 million business, and it's still about the same relationship, 50-50. So you, as you head into the late, into the late kind of OOs, as you called it, mm-hmm. so you have, uh, you have your meals, you have your, your cheddar bunnies, 
at what what point did you feel like okay was that the point where you started feeling that you're on to something yeah it was i i really think it was but the but the big big breakout for this brand was when we did a hard commitment to organic um when we did that um, and then we started, we took all the pasta in the brand, took it to organic. And then we started, we continued to line extend the snacks business. We went into bunny grams. So that was our version of a Teddy gram, but it was clean. And, um, and then we did fruit snacks and we, that was an organic fruit snack. And so each one of those things built. And then we, we started selling the brand like at a platform level, like, Hey, this is a power brand and you need it in the store and you need Stonyfield and you need Applegate. And we kind of brought it to a strategic level. And the chains were up and up until the mid OOs, lots of the chains didn't even believe in organic. Some did, some didn't. You'd have a buyer that did, you'd have buyers that didn't. We started selling over the top of it to the CEOs and to the hmm. heads of marketing and all that. And they really were starting to buy into this thing called the millennial consumer, which no one was even talking about back then. We showed um, some demographic data in the middle of that decade that was showing this big wave of consumers that were coming and the, and the differences between the way that they thought about things and their parents thought about things. And it was really clear there was just going to be this huge crash on the, on the, on the beach of consumers. And um, we felt Annie's was really well positioned against that. And it turned out to be true. And a, a lot of other brands were too. And it's completely disrupted the food business, like you guys know, obviously. So you become a platform. So when did you feel like you were truly a platform brand? Was it tw- was it uh, like twenty ten ish? Like when is that? When- yeah, it was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Is okay. when I felt like we had done um, a ton of consumer research by then. We had gotten a lot more sophisticated. We brought in some outside CPG help, and one time we went out and we concept tested one hundred and twenty five different things. Everything from um, sunscreen to uh, candy bars to potato chips to uh, lip balm and then a whole bunch of different foods. The only two things that consu- consumers told us they didn't thought fit with the brand were potato chips and candy bars. So there's Annie's said, lip balm? No, there isn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they basically gave us permission to go into every single category except the ones that they perceived as right. really unhealthy. Right. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, that doesn't mean that we should go into all of your category, that we would do well or we'd win if we did. But it, what it told you is that the brand didn't stand for a category. It stood for these sets of values and ideals. And that's what makes a powerful brand. It's, it, it rises above product. Product is integral to it. But it, like, it connects with consumers um, in a very emotional way based on sets of values that they have and share with the brand. And that's really powerful. And when you, when you originally got involved, obviously at that point, it wasn't a platform yet, but did you always envision that it was going to become that or did that come Um, later? It it came later, but not that much later because we invested in 1990, 1998, 1999, right then. And we launched Cheddar Bunnies in 0304 right in that time frame so it was a couple years later got it and that was it was all about mac and cheese at the beginning it was like hey this is a great product and we just got to get more doors with it and we did that's what our sales organization helped us do one of the things that that really resonates with with me regarding annie's was the the few number of standalone brands that have ever gone public mm-hmm. it's a very rare uh, rare class and rare mm-hmm. breed at what point did you start thinking about becoming a public company Oh, I remember at the exact moment. Um, I was sitting on a cell phone um, in a parking lot. Um, I want to say I was in Vallejo, a Safeway parking lot in Vallejo, talking to 
the head of our venture fund, which was Solaire Capital, Molly what, Ashby. What year was this? This was, we went public in 2012, so this was about 2010-ish, right okay. in that range. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, their fund had been in the in the business for a long time. It put a fair amount of capital into it, and they obviously needed to get some liquidity. And um, so we were talking about, like, who would be a great buyer of this business? Should we sell it? And um, the conversation went to, like, hey, what about an IPO? And I remember going, you know, I think we could do it. And um, Molly said, you know, but nobody's done it for 13 years. And I think the one before that was Celestial Seasons. I'm not quite sure. But there hadn't been one in a long time. That's right. Right. And I said, um, I think that this could be one. And she said, you know what? I agree. And I said, I, I always love like one of the philosophies I've always had in business is when everyone tells you something is stupid, <laughs> it could be stupid or there's maybe a counterintuitive move there that could be really powerful. So the fact that everyone was telling us that that's not a good idea and do it was led me to be more focused on trying to do it. And the reason for it, I mean, obviously we're trying to maximize value for our shareholders, right? That's our job. Any entrepreneur's job who brings in outside capital, you got to try to do that. So there was that element to it. But the the one of the real elements that was I loved about it was that it would allow us to stay independent longer. Like we had really started to develop a strong culture and based on these values. And I felt like the longer that I could run the business independently, the deeper and richer those things would become and the more wound into the fabric of the brand they would be so that if we were ever bought by somebody else, that would be really hard to screw up. Or our buyer would look at it and go, man, if I screw that up, this thing's toast. Um, and so we uh, that that was really big. We were public for almost three years and, and, and it made a huge difference in the fabric of this brand being a lot deeper and richer. But before we get to the time when you were a public mm-hmm. CEO... How big was the business at the time when you were considering going public? What, did, it, what, was it, the, what was the financial picture like at that point? Yeah, so it was, um, I think when we filed our S-1, our trailing, which is the document you file yeah. with the government, mm-hmm. um, I think we were about $140 million trailing revenues and probably about a 9 or 10% operating income line, right okay. around there. So we were just starting to really scale the bottom line, um, and the business was growing 25-ish percent. Did you get the ring the ring the bell? Yeah, I did. At the stock exchange? Well, I actually I didn't push it. It's a button actually, so, not a bell. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's, I didn't realize that until I got yeah. there. Um yeah, you push the a button and it goes. Um so no, there's a picture up there. We had a lot of kids up there. I was up there. Um my team was it was it was a great moment. I'll never forget it. So when you actually sort of made that transition, or actually even before then, you know, mm-hmm. even thinking about a public company CEO, mm-hmm. what were your I mean, the question that I have is more, what were your perceptions of what that would be like? And then how did that compare to reality? Yeah, I talked with a lot of people about that question before I did it. So I, I had a pretty good idea of what was coming, but having an idea about it and then having it happen can <laughs> reality check. Right. Um, so um, I thought it was going to be um, hard and it was hard. It was It was really hard. And what I found is I spent less and less of my time on the business and more and more of my time just externally communicating. The The natural gravity of being a public company is you need to talk to investors, you need to talk to the street, and there's just no way around it. And especially in a small company where you don't have the ability to have so much depth in management where you can have somebody do that. Now, I did bring in an incredible guy to run investor relations for mm-hmm. me, um, who was, uh, his name's Ed Aaron, and 
he's very well known on the on Wall Street. He was one of the first equity analysts that covered uh, Whole Foods, and he's been in the natural space forever. So I convinced him to leave this really high paying job and come into this crazy thing <laughs> and, go, and go public. And but that made a big difference. It helped, but it's it's very difficult. What were some of the the things that you had to change in yeah. how you ran a business on a quarter to quarter basis versus mm-hmm. being a private company? The biggest uh, we didn't get it all right. I mean, we, we we took it public pretty like I'd say nine to twelve months after we decided to do it, which is pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be so dialed in, like your internal systems and controls and FP and A, and your ability to call the business has to be so dialed in, way more than most people understand. You have to know if you're going to make your number 30 days before the end of the quarter. How's the quarter tracking? You know, what are the odds you're going to miss or exceed? You need mm-hmm. to know that well before the end of the quarter. And like, think of all the businesses out there. Like, that's a high bar to pass. Absolutely. Even even in big, sophisticated companies, a high bar to pass. So, oh, yeah. so we had to really quickly beef up our FP&A capabilities and our systems. And then, oh, by the way, there's this little thing, which is maybe we should have gone on to a really high quality ERP system before we went public instead of like <laughs> a year and a half after we, so we was a company on QuickBooks or no, it wasn't QuickBooks. It was on a system called McCola, which okay. was a manufacturing, but, yep. but the hilarious thing was we had to call it out as a risk factor. And so I'm on the street and we're, we're, we're making these calls, um, on the road show and all these investors are like, what the F about like doing an ERP transition when you're a one year? <laughs> like, what is that about? Right. Like, you know, they don't often see that kind of risk in a profile, but, um, did it change how you were building, how you did think about building a brand or what products you would sell and when to, to affect kind of making sure you hit quarterly numbers Did it mm-hmm. change that dynamic of being able to think long-term versus short-term. There's, um, it, it definitely changed the way we thought about pacing products because you needed news. I mean, we always had that, right? I mean, the typical company growing up in our space, even today, they're like, okay, what's my news for Expo West? What's my news for Expo East? Right. Kind of like in a show. Mm-hmm. We had to be like on a cycle, which was like, what's our what's our communication points to the street? How do we hit that? Um, it put a lot more pressure on profitability, as you can imagine, because you couldn't make, when we were a private company, it'd be like, I wouldn't really care about the quarters that much. I'd be like, hey, if we need to dump some more spending into this product right now because it's going to be the right thing for this business a year from now, I mm-hmm. would have no issues doing that. But when you're a public company, you've committed to targets. You have to be really mindful of that. So it does really put handcuffs on you. And then for from a leadership perspective, mm-hmm. you know, after going public, did you have to change anything about how you led your team? I had to, I had to really talk to them a lot and educate them on the, there's a disconnect. Like people, when, when a company goes public, I talked to other CEOs that have gone through this. People start valuing the, their worth and the worth of their company based on what the stock's trading at. Mm-hmm. So they all feel like s- smart heroes when the stock's rolling. <laughs> and then the stock's down 10% on one day and everybody's going like, God, what did we do? We suck. You right. know? So um, what I did, I came, I came back and talked to the team and, um, you'll appreciate this having been in the space so long. I put up a, a chart, a split adjusted chart of a stock. And I said, here's a, here's a stock that's out there right now. And I, it had all these big peaks and valleys. I'm all, do you think they were a better company here versus there? And were they worse here versus there? And we had the conversation about, of course they weren't right. They're mm-hmm. running their business. And it turned out it was whole foods. 
Oh, uh, gosh. Th- their stock is, and they were at the time like rolling, right? Right. right. And so um, that's how I can educate. But you do have to really be cognizant of that. You have to externally message, but you're constantly trying to reassure your team and also mm-hmm. keep them focused on everything other than just the stock price. Right. So were there challenges that eventually came up to why you decided to sell the business to, yeah. to Str- General Mills? So the, the stock traded at a really high multiple for a long time. And that's the best insurance against people coming and trying to take you out, right? Um, so we didn't have a lot of pressure on that front. But the last couple quarters before we went, before we ended up selling the business, we ran into some real commodity headwinds. And organic wheat got incredibly short really fast. And we were not prepared for it. Our visibility was not there for it. And it just creamed our P&L. And we made every adjustment we could to compensate for it. But So the stock traded down. Um, so when we went public, we went public at 19. Stock closed the first day at 31. Our peak was right around 51, 52. Most of the time we traded in the mid to high 30s, which was a pretty high multiple mm-hmm. on, on every base. Our stock after this happened, we I think we traded maybe a few ticks at 28 or 29, and then in the low 30s. And when that happened, we were still expensive by most measures, but I think a lot of the big CPGs that had been watching us were like, okay, this might be our shot. So we got to start getting a lot of phone calls, and it was really clear that um, we were going to probably have to do something to control our own destiny or, or some auction or some activist would come in. So we hired a banker and we were very picky and we picked about five or six companies that we would be even willing to talk to. And we went out and talked to them and it ultimately ended up in General Mills buying the business. And, and how many years again was it a public company? It was a little less than three. Got it. Mm-hmm. So but before we move on to the General Mills era, era, is it something you would recommend that other brands do and consider in terms of going public? I I would. It's definitely not for every company. I think though that that if you got a brand that truly can be a lot bigger than it is today, and and you've got the capabilities inside to double or triple the business, I think it it is something that companies should consider. Or, but I also think you got to have the right skill sets and you got to be aware of what you got to do inside the company to be ready for it. So I'm a little bit masochistic. I've said I would do it again. <laughs> But I've learned a lot. Though. I learned a lot the first time. Like, what do you need? And um, but I think it's it's an exception, you know, for CPG companies. If you look around, how many CPG companies have grown from zero to a billion and stayed independent? You guys know it's kind of on one hand, exactly. Man. And it's because it's hard. You get to a certain size where the scale of a big partner can really help you do things that it's very difficult to do by yourself. And so there's this natural law that people tend to get bought. And 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 brands generally are. are maximized by thinking about it over the long term and to your point it's it was it's a hard thing to do on a quarter to quarter basis very hard but i i think it's i think it would be good for the space in general if a few more companies went public i do because it raises the visibility of national organic it exposes it to a lot more capital um but but you gotta it's not for the faint of heart mm-hmm. but to your point there's few few brands of that kind of scale very, like a very like few. a chobani or a kind etc very few yeah tell us about the general mills era so what was it like uh then going from entrepreneurial company to public company to being owned by big cpg so everything i learned about being a cpg executive i learned by doing it and surrounding my people myself with people who knew more than me or just asking lots of questions so I didn't grow up in that environment. So for me, it was fascinating. 
General Mills um, was a good fit for us because they're very high integrity people and they really understood what they were buying with Annie's. I met with uh, their CEO and also with the person that ran North America who really sponsored the deal, Jeff Harmoning. And um, before they bought it, I said, like, here, here's what we to, to make this business grow. Here are the things you need to do to not screw it up and ruin this brand. Here are the things you need to honor. And they were like, we're all over that. And it was sustainability, commitment to high quality ingredients, organic, you know, all the things you can imagine. Yep. So um, we they let us uh, stay pretty independent. I asked for it and they were totally in support of it. And the business stayed out in Berkeley. It's still out in Berkeley. We doubled the business over a period of about two years. And it was largely getting integrated onto some systems and then really starting to leverage the power of a big company like General Mills, incredible sales organization, great retailer relationships, synergies in warehousing and logistics. You can imagine all that stuff. So it was great. And I learned, uh, I learned a ton from General Mills, from their people, you know, they do some amazingly brilliant things. And just like any big company, they do a lot of stuff. You just shake your head as an entrepreneur and go, my God, I can't believe they still do that. (laughs) But I learned a ton and I developed a lot of great relationships there. And um, one of the things I spent a fair amount of time on too was um, 301, which was their venturing group. They were just starting, kind of just helping them get that going. They've done a great job there. Um, Before before we go too far on that, I want to ask the same question that Robin asked you about your public company era. What did you perceive it would be like um, working under General Mills and what did it end up being and what what were some of the challenges that may have come up that you didn't yeah. anticipate? They, they let us stay pretty independent, which was um, maybe even a little more independent than I would have guessed before we did it, which was a surprise but a positive one. Mm-hmm. Um, I After a time, um, I remember thinking about how much time I'm spending on stuff other than like driving my business, right? it's almost, there's a similar, it's kind of eerie parallel to being public, right? When you're on a senior leadership team of coming like General Mills, so I was on the U.S. leadership team, so I was sat next to the president that ran meals and baking and yogurt and snacks. And um, I spent, so I spent a lot of time on the U.S. enterprise, and there was a lot of time in meetings, and I remember telling myself, Man, <laughs> I, I want to stick a pen in my eye right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe I should, I should probably should be go back to my entrepreneurial roots. Um, but I love those guys and they're, they're continuing to be very successful. Um, and I think it's, again, just like, I think it'd be helpful to have a few companies be successful public. I also think it's very important for the space for CBG companies to be very successful acquiring, building these businesses mm-hmm. because it creates a great ecosystem for great innovation and cool companies to be created that can grow and then ultimately be acquired. So how many years now has it been under General Mills now? It's uh, It was about three years when I left in Got it. September. So at what point did you start thinking about, I, I want to move on to something something new? So my, my original deal with Mills was that I was going to be there a year. Um, and it wasn't like, John, in a year we'll ask you if you want to stay. It was like, no, John, you're gone in a year. <laughs> <laughs> Just heads up for any entrepreneur. That's generally the way it starts. Right. <laughs> but pretty quickly after that, um, you know, I I began to appreciate those guys. They began to appreciate me, and they really wanted me to stay. So um, I decided I was going to stay and only leave when Annie's was ready for me to leave, and it could continue to thrive. And it wasn't ready yet a year. We had too much integration work to do. There was too much cultural stuff I was still trying to protect and just make sure that we were assimilating. Um 
So it was about two years when I was starting to say, you know what, I think I could walk away from here and the culture is strong enough, the team's strong enough, and they're so integrated. They honor the brand. I think they'll be very successful. But um, I was really not, I didn't have an exact idea what I wanted to do. It was kind of like when an opportunity came up or an idea came up that really touched my heart, like I would be all in on it. And really up until Once Upon a Farm came about, there wasn't that. There was lots of opportunities, of course, but none of them... I really spent more than a couple of minutes on. What were, the, what were the spectrum of different things that you were thinking about? I mean, you'd done so much of mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur mm-hmm. to a public company CEO to mm-hmm. working in, in, uh, within General Mills. So it was a crazy range because um, there weren't a lot of people in natural organic food with my background. So I, had, I could have run a bunch of small public companies. Um, not a bunch because there's not a bunch, but you can imagine there's a few out there. Right. Um, I had a million startup company opportunities and venture funds coming and asking me to get involved in stuff. I could have been CEO of a whole bunch of really well-known brands in this space, um, but none of them really touched my heart. So what was what what made Once Upon a Farm the one? So it's um, what made it the one. So first of all, it's really a tiny company. Like it's a lot smaller company than I thought I would go back to. I kind of. I never really put rules around it, but I thought I was like, yeah, I'm probably perfect for about a $50 million company and growing to two, 300. Like, but, um, this business is like less than a million dollars a year. I mean, it's, it's tiny. Um, so you decide you're going to go to something even smaller than when you, when you (laughs) joined Annie's, you know, two or three decades ago. So the story is after general mills bought, um, the brand obviously had a little bit of disposable capital. Right. And um, they were really cool about letting me invest in other stuff as long as it wasn't competitive and I was transparent with them, which I obviously was. And so I was very interested in the fresh baby space. And there were a few small brands that were out there. They were kicking the toe around it. And I looked at them and they had great product, but it just, the brand didn't really speak to me. And then one day, a friend of mine, you may know him, uh, Greg Fleischman um, from Purely Righteous. I knew him from this Kashi days going way back. Absolutely. He knows everybody out there. That's right. Called me up and he goes, John, he goes, you, last time we talked, you told me that you're interested in Fresh Baby. He goes, I got the brand for you. This is the one. And I go, really? He goes, yeah. He told me the story about Ari and Cassandra founding this business in San Diego, doing HPP baby food in a pouch. He helped them really rebrand it as Once Upon a Farm, and they hadn't even sold it out in stores yet at that time. So I talked to Ari. Um, he sends me the deck. I looked at it. I wired him a big check like two days later. I'm all, this is exactly what I'm <laughs> yeah, exactly. for. Um, so I was invested in that company right from the beginning. And then obviously I'm real busy. I advised and helped them as much as I could, but they're tiny and I didn't have right. a lot of time. And then um, about probably about nine months ago now, um, Ari calls me up and goes, hey, John, what's going on? It, we have this crazy thing. Jennifer Garner's manager contacted us and she's really interested in doing something in the food space. She's been looking to do it for six years. She hasn't found anything that really touched her heart and she aligned with. And we met with her and we liked her a lot. And she saw that you were an investor and she really wants to meet you. She loves Annie's obviously she has three kids. And so I said, okay, um, this is, this is the dead truth. I'm not a celebrity follower. In fact, most, a lot of them, I don't even know who they are. Mm-hmm. And, a lot of the ones I've met, actually, I haven't really cared for. They're really they're just right. very full of themselves. So, but I said, you know, my kids really loved thirteen going on thirty, <laughs> and, I, and I liked Alias. So I go, okay, I'll go. Back. <laughs> this is awesome. So, yeah. So, um, so they set up this hour meeting. Her manager Nicole and with me, Nicole and Jen, and Greg Fleischman, and um, I'm a 
uh, I'm tired. My car blows out on the way to the airport. My plane's late. Like, I get there half hour late for an hour meeting. It's just a total disaster. Right. <laughs> Any other meeting. I probably, you were acting like the celebrity. Know, you, were, you were big time. <laughs> like, I exactly, like it. Exactly. Seriously. This I like is it. No As this was happening, I was going, any other meeting, I would have just said, I'm not making it. Right. 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 But I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So I show up, and we started talking. The, the, the really amazing thing was, like, we obviously spent a little bit of time just like kind of getting to know each other. But what we spent most of the time talking about was like values. Um, Jen spent the last 10 years being the primary like public face of save the children in the U S and she's from, she was born in West Virginia and through the work that she's had growing up there and also through the work she's had, she's really dialed into the real challenges that young kids face, especially kids of poverty and so we connected on that. We talked about what I learned at General Mills and Annie's and about the power of companies in, in general, but purpose-driven companies to drive positive social change. And so we totally connected on that. And then the meeting went like three hours. She blew off whatever was after me. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't a big, important That's movie right, that right. she had doing. <laughs> right. But there was a point in this meeting, total truth, it's hilarious. There's a point in this meeting, it's about an hour, probably an hour and a half, two hours in, where I was sitting there and we were talking about, okay, hey, Jan, if we get you involved in this business, um, you, you can come in as a co-founder because the company is so small, like, mm-hmm. you know, and what we, we need to get a CEO and we need to do all this stuff. And I'm sitting there going like, so well, why don't I do this? Like, <laughs> like this is crazy. But uh, so I go, Jen, I go, I will leave Annie's and come be the CEO of this company and grow this thing. I go, I'm in if you're in. She goes, I mean, if you're in, and we, oh wow, and, and we had a high five moment, and then I'm like, okay, well, all right, we're connected on this. We got to first of all make sure that Ari and Cassandra like like that idea, right? Um, um, so, I, I, I'm sure that didn't take much convincing. No, I'm very close with them, and, yeah. and I but and I told Ari Cassandra, I said, hey, um, I'll do this, but only if you want me to, right? You know? I mean, I've, I'm very respectful of them. They're amazing entrepreneurs, and they're still deeply involved in the business. So, Ari's president, Cassandra's innovation. Jen is chief brand officer and I'm CEO. And um, so it came over. We had to go through, you know, the process of negotiating all that stuff. You can imagine how not complicated that was. (laughs) Um, And then I came over quickly and assembled a great team and we put a plan together and we're off and running. So you literally went into that meeting without having made the decision that you were going to join on as a full-time no, person. Z- zero. Oh. I, had, I actually was, you just enjoyed the fact that she was on alias yeah, and, yeah. and, 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 uh, yeah. in your, no, I was doing due diligence for these guys to say, Hey, would you right. be a good partner? And right. like, and no, it was just a weird turn of events. She, Jen and, Garner is a crazy good negotiator. That's apparently. right. That's right. That's wow. right. All right. Um, anyway, no, just tons of mutual respect. Like I would have never done this if I didn't have respect for her. And she's she's been amazing so far, and will be in the future. This is really great. Very That's personal great. for her. So, how long? Did, you know, how do you extract yourself out of a General Mills? Like, how long did that process so take? So, as soon as I knew, um, as soon as I knew there was a good chance it was going to happen, but not a perfect one, I called the head of North America and just said, hey, I, here's this opportunity I have. And I think it's maybe 90% chance that it'll actually happen. There's always in these things a chance something will not happen. But mm-hmm. I said, if this happens, I got to do it. I want to give you the longest note. So I gave them a long time. And and then, you know, agreed to stay on and transition and really help them pick pick my successor and make her successful. So what's been the biggest surprise so far in terms of going from, you know, full circle to the smallest company you, you've probably ever been a part of? 
The biggest, I don't know if it's, I've had any surprises yet. I've had lots of reminders though. Like, yeah, I was going to say, well, it's yeah, got to be much, the, the I, it's, it's got to be like, very different than running Annie's. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Actually, in some ways, a much harder job. Um, but I, the reminders are like, hmm, I'm going to go talk to a customer right now and, and I want to make a point. Oh, I guess I can't call the research department and ask him to pull some data. <laughs> I'm like, I guess I have to pull the file myself and rip it and like come to a conclusion. You know? <laughs> um, or we need to set our office up and who's setting the furniture up? Oh, I guess that's us. Like, here's your Allen wrench. Right. <laughs> so um, it's been it's been fun. I haven't done that stuff for a long time. And like you said, this company's way earlier stages than even Annie's when I got involved. Um, but it's been great. It's been going really well, knock on wood. And um, we need a little luck, but I think we've got a really good opportunity. So what's the vision? What do you want to build? I want to build the really the next generation um, kids and nutrition brand. So like think of it as like um, a 3.0, you know, um, a company like Annie's would have been, you know, 2.0. It would have absolutely taken like, Stuff that's not that healthy, but mom and kids love. Give them a much cleaner alternative um, on the dimension of no artificial pesticides, you know, ingredients. Basically, the promise of organic. To me, there's an opportunity to take nutrition further, and the opportunity that Fresh gives you gives you the opportunity to deliver much better nutrition. Lots of additional risk and complexity in supply chain, but right. technology is now there that's letting us do some stuff in Fresh that we couldn't do years ago. So that to me is the real exciting opportunity. I think there's a big white space in kid from baby all the way up through age about 12. And so that's what we're going to try to attack with the brand. Do you think it'll all be refrigerated? Um, I think um, it's hard to answer that question now. I think if we could deliver against the promise of really elevated nutrition in dry, we'd be open to it. Um, But right now we haven't really seen um, any technology that we think is going to give us the edge we would need there. So it's for sure going to be refrigerated for the time being. Uh, Other than than production capabilities Mm -hmm. um, and sort of growing from 2.0 to 3.0, as you mentioned, what are, what are the biggest challenges now or biggest changes that you see in growing, uh, growing a business? Uh, Just generally growing a business or Or growing a business in this category. Yeah. So the biggest challenge we have in this category is that um, this is one of the very few places I've seen in my career where consumers are way ahead of where manufacturers and retailers are. You know, moms, a significant majority of moms when they have a child want to give the kid the best food, obviously. And many of them experiment with making their own food, thinking that's the best. But then they run into the reality of it's difficult and takes a lot of time. Um, but if you look at a grocery store, there isn't a refrigerated baby section. There's a big aisle and there's no refrigerators in it. Um, so the big challenge is figuring out how to navigate retailers um, and deliver a product to a consumer in a place that they can find it in scale. And it's really hard to do that. Um, that was the biggest risk coming into this business. And it's going well. We'll be in a lot of stores um, by this summer. Um, but I think retailers are seeing, we're, we're talking to them about the opportunity. It's a much bigger opportunity than just, you know, the, the, what's been there before. Right after the break, we'll talk more with today's guest, Once Upon a Farm CEO, John Forker. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. If you enjoy the show, let us know by leaving us a review. 
And now, back to our episode with former CEO of Annie's and current CEO of Once Upon a Farm, John Forker. Question that we always ask is, uh, in your multiple careers now, has there been a, a bet the company moment? One of the ones I always think about was when we made the strong commitment to go organic. Um, Annie's didn't start out as an organic company. The brand in 1989 was just natural mac and cheese. In 1998, um, we launched certified organic mac and cheese, but that was before certification. It was called organic mac and cheese, right? Before 2002. Um, but it was a very small business. And But in, in the mid-00s, we looked at our consumers, we talked to them, and we said, we think this brand should be an organic brand, and we should lean in hard right now. And that meant going out and finding a bunch of organic wheat. We did that. But then when we figured out how much it cost, the business made about a million dollars that prior year. And I, my, my plan to move it all organic was going to wipe that out. And I wasn't going to take pricing because I felt it was the absolute right thing for the business. So I had this board meeting at Anaheim. And Gary Hirschberg, who founded Stonyfield, a big advocate of organic, was on my board. And I remember this so clearly getting up and saying, here's why we should do this. We have these mission and vision and values, and it says we should drive toward organic. And oh, by the way, there's this little problem. It's going to cost us a lot more, and we can't. Ch- we don't want to charge more. It wasn't we couldn't charge more. We didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And it was going to wipe out the whole bottom line that you were also happy about last year after <laughs> years of like not making too much right. money. And um, so Gary slams his hand down the table. He's like, I'm with John. We need to do this. And I'm like, thank you, Gary. I love you. Shocking. And, yeah, shocking. Right. <laughs> And um, the board and the investors thankfully supported it and thought it was a really good idea. And we did that. That was a great moment. It could have blown up so badly. We could have converted the brand all to or, or mostly to organic and then not been able to supply it or mm-hmm. the cost could have gone higher. It was a really risky thing to do. Or it could have been too early for consumers. Could have right? been too early yeah. for consumers. All those things. But I think that was like I think that was the seminal moment of this brand. I really do. Well, well, as a legend in the natural food space, it's got to be even hard to pick. What, is there a particular high point that of this amazing journey you've been on that resonates um, with you? I have, uh, yeah, the, thankfully I have a lot. Um, the one I always think of is the night before the company went public in 2012. Um, uh, I was staying in a hotel um, in New York, and I walked down toward the New York Stock Exchange, and when you go public, you can kind of decorate the outside of the NYSE. And so we, we put up this enormous banner of Bernie. It was all purple. We shed it in purple light. And Bernie's on the side of the New York Stock Exchange, this like global symbol of like capitalism. Right. And I remember looking up at it and just being in awe and just going, man, the world has changed so much that, that the most sophisticated blue chip investors in the world all want to invest in this business, you know, our roadshow we a hundred percent of the people we met with converted to orders and the stock was oversubscribed like 35 or 40 to one. And I remember that was like probably my single proudest moment because we had really arrived the industry in many ways. I was going to say, yeah, it represented a a huge win for not only you, but the the natural products industry as a whole. And I felt a lot of um, pressure for that to make sure that we lived up to that because we were in such the spotlight um, but but I know we did it and couldn't have done it without a lot of work that a lot of people had done in this industry that allowed us to do what we did. But during a, a, a long storied career, there has to be at least one one notable low, low point. Is there one that stands out? Uh, one that stands out. Um, we had to do a class one FDA recall um, in about 
about 2013 in our pizza business. We had a, we launched frozen pizza. We had a lot of momentum going with it. And we got a call from a consumer that they'd found a little stainless steel wire in a pizza oh. and, um, which is your nightmare. You're right. selling food to kids. Right? right. And so long story short, we found out that, that there indeed had been a failure of a screen in a flower plant of a supplier. And so this screen was shedding off, uh, stainless steel Gosh. and their record keeping was so bad on this one screen that we couldn't even identify whether it was that it happened this week or that day or that hour. We basically recalled every piece that we ever made. Oh, wow. And I was as a public company. It, said? it was a public company. Oof. Yeah. That was a fun conference call to have. Oh gosh. <laughs> um, but we just explained exactly what we had, uh, what happened and we recovered beautifully from it, but the, it was a really low point because I was really worried about um, our kids, the kids that eat the product and their health. Great. Now that you're standing up once upon a farm, what keeps you up at night? Um, what keeps me up at night? Just the challenges of managing high growth. And um, there's not one. Um, you know, obviously, we're in the kid food business, and we're now even in the baby food business. So food safety is the absolute number one. So I always worry about that, even mm-hmm. though I think we've got, um, you know, industry leading standards and controls. But that's one thing you always are worried about. But um, it's uh, do we have uh, the right the right capabilities to succeed with this customer? Or is our call with this retailer going to go well next week? I worry about everything all the time. <laughs> the paranoid survive. Yeah, all paranoid of the above. Survive. Yeah. Oh, there was a story written about me when we were a public company in Annie's, and I think the headline was like something like "I'm a total paranoid schizophrenic," basically, <laughs> which is true. I think entrepreneurs that aren't paranoid are the ones that are going to get steamrolled. I love the part about his journey, trying to get to his meeting with Jennifer Garner. <laughs> Tire blows out, flight's late. Who would have thought John Forker is the one that's late to meet with Jennifer Garner? I know. But it turns like the meeting really kind of took an unexpected turn where he left the meeting as CEO of the company of a very early stage brand at that. I know. And, and it's interesting because, I mean, he could have picked anything. And he's, he's t- taking on a, a category that's it's not altogether that easy. It's, it's definitely an emerging category. They're going into sort of fresh product, and that requires refrigeration. And it's, it's a whole new world because Annie's before, I mean, mac and cheese and snacks, those are all shelf-stable products. But if there's any guy that can do it, it's John Foraker. And like many entrepreneurs we talk to, John's quick to thank the person behind the curtain who actually made it possible. My wife has, a, has, has played a huge role in like not only my career success, enabling it by helping support me on the home front, but more on like the, um, the vision, values, purpose, like change the world for the better. And like um, she's an enormous advocate for inclusion for kids with, with disabilities in mainstream schools. Catholic schools in particular. Our son Patrick has Down syndrome. He's 18. Um, but she's a warrior, and I'm inspired by her all the time. And she's constantly haranguing me to do more and to be more active and to take advantage of you know whatever notoriety I have and the ability to talk to other people. And so um, she's made me so much better. We, I would have never been here without her. So there, that's, that's, a, that's the shout-out to Mrs. Foraker right there. <laughs> right. Good job, Beth. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, it's the moment you've, you've, that you've been waiting for and that all of our listeners have been waiting for. Our rapid-fire game, 60 okay. seconds. Get through as many as you can. First thing that comes to your mind, just say it. You ready? Yep. All right, let's do it. The first thing you read every day is? Uh, the, um, webpage. What's your favorite movie? Uh, 13 going on 30. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this will be easy. Who's your celebrity crush? <laughs> oh, Jen, of course. <laughs> 
karaoke song you're most likely to belt out? Oh, it's probably like a 70s rock song. Your hometown is famous for? Um, being a crazy party town, Playboy College of the Year. <laughs> What's your guilty pleasure? Um, red wine. First car you ever drove? 73 MGB. Nice. Runner-up name for your business that didn't make the cut? <laughs> Pass. <laughs> do you recline on airplanes? Uh, no, it's totally rude. I never do that. Oh. If you could drink one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what do you choose? Oh, I uh, Lagunitas IPA. Nice. What was your last New Year's resolution? Um, that I was going to work out more, eat healthier, um, just like every other year. <laughs> if you were stranded on an island and you could only bring one thing, what would it be? Uh, my iPhone. What's the last hashtag you used? <laughs> uh, last hashtag? Uh, I think it was DACA. <laughs> Where's the next place you'd like to travel? Oh, I want to go to Asia. If a movie was made of your life, you'd be played by? Uh, uh, I can't remember his name. Oh, oh is that it? Oh, okay. All right, so last question that we wrap up with for all the budding entrepreneurs out there. Any words of advice? Um, ask for help. Um, surround yourself with people that know more than you do. And and if you look around and you're the smartest person in the room and know more than everyone else, you don't have it right. So <laughs> make sure you're surrounding yourself with great people. Um, listen to your heart. Um, act with integrity. Always do the right thing. Um, and and um, you'll have the best odds for success. And listen to your wife. And listen to your wife. <laughs> She's smarter than I am, so I always listen to her. <laughs> well, John, thank you for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Tim Brown, co-founder and co-CEO of Allbirds, maker of eco-friendly, comfortable, and fashionable wool shoes. But along the way, Tim found himself wondering if he'd ever see his dream become a reality. And it would go around the table and people would be talking about what they, you know, uh, what they were doing. You know, when we were kind of young, 30s, people's, the careers are starting to blossom. And it would get to me and I, I could feel my shoulders starting to tense up uh, because people were going to ask a, a, about, you know, what I was doing. And I'd sort of, you know, mumble kind of wool shoes and, <laughs> and, and, and people would pat, pat, pat me on the head. And, and That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.